stop paying those high retail prices for other optics that underperform. At Track Optics, we're passionate about creating the best optics for hunting and long-range precision shooting. We know that having the right equipment can make all the difference in your experience. That's why we use the highest quality materials and the latest technology to produce optics that are durable, reliable, and perform exceptionally well in any environment. For more information, visit trackedoptics.com. Again, that's trackedoptics.com. Upgrade today with Tracked Optics. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And you're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast. We're back again and... We're we're moving on to the letter C this time, which is, I have to say, quite exciting because it feels like we've been on the letter B for quite a while and the various specials that have come off the back of it. Um, So now we're on C, which opens up a whole new range of people that um, I've been looking forward to doing for a while. Uh, Today's episode is going to focus on... It's actually quite heavily focused on the the kind of art production side of Bond. So we've got um, Sid Kane. We've also got Alan Cameron. Um, who else have we got? So I've got Jeffrey Kane. And I'm going to touch on Martin Campbell as well. Yeah, Martin Campbell. He's, he's a good one. Looking forward to doing him because uh, obviously two of the best Bond films he's responsible for. Yeah. yeah. And so it's quite interesting to, to look at a director that's done two of the first Bond films mm. from two different actors so yes that's that's this episode so who's starting today c is for kane sid kane who is he why is he important to the well sid kane is a production designer and later on in his career uh, was a storyboard artist well, he worked on five bond films in total dr no from russia with love on Her Majesty's Secret Service, Live and Let Die, and then a bit of a break and came back with Goldeneye. I'll tell you a little bit about uh, Sid and his early life. Um, Sidney B. Kane uh, was born in Grantham, Lincolnshire. So Lincolnshire. I saw this. Yeah, yeah I, I'm surprised you didn't mention this to me when you were doing your research. <laughs> so yeah, he's up there with Margaret Thatcher and Isaac Newton as being one of Grantham's finest exports. <laughs> <laughs> not, yeah. not Margaret Thatcher, no. Yeah. 
uh, and his father, Tom Kane, apparently was an all-round athlete who played professional football. So obviously he worked a lot on Bond films and that's what he's probably best known for. But actually his work beyond Bond is even more impressive than actually the stuff that maybe people know him best for. And he worked in the 60s and 70s as an assistant art director for Stanley Kubrick, um, Ronald Neem, Francois Truffaut, uh, Richard Lester, uh, Ken Russell, Alfred Hitchcock and Jack Gold. Mm. So such an amazing CV of different people. Um that he worked with. He also worked on, he was art director on the Cliff Richard film, uh, Summer Holiday, and mm-hmm. was production designer on the revival series, The New Avengers. Um, so he was, um, he served in the armed forces in the Second World War. Uh, after uh, serving in the armed forces, he, he survived a plane crash, actually, and came back um, and had to recover from a broken back. So, uh yeah, it's quite a um, yeah, quite a tough service there by the sounds of it. But um, he began working at Denham Studios in Buckinghamshire in the 1940s and 50s, um, moving up from a, a, an uncredited draftsman to an assistant arts direct uh, art director. And a draftsman is someone who draws up plans, um, things like that. Um, obviously, in the production department, and so then he worked his way up to a um, assistant art director, and he actually. During this time at um, Denham Studios, he, he sort of developed his trademark, um, which was putting his name on the screen among documents. I don't know if you came across this in your research, but he would like to put his name on documents that, that then appeared on screen. So there's quite a, a, quite a few good famous examples worth looking up if you've got the time. Um, and then he was then employed by a film producer, you might have heard of him, called Albert R. Cubby Broccoli. Um, this oh, yeah. was when he was working with Irving Allen at Warwick Films so see the Cubby Broccoli episode for more detail on that and this is where Sid moved up from being a draftsman through to being an assistant art director um, he was art um, he was a draftsman on Hell Below Zero and then an assistant art director on Cockleshell Heroes they were both two two of Cubby's uh, Warwick Films and then his first art director gig was on a film called The Road to Hong Kong in 1962 this was uh, the uh, um, a British produced film, and it was a Bob Hope Bing Crosby comedy. Brilliant film, brilliant! I've seen uh, it. You know this one, um, and yeah. then obviously uh, Kane also then went to work on uh, Bob Hope's Call Me Buana again. See the Cubby Broccoli oh, episode. Okay. So he worked on the Call Me Buana, which will come up again when we talk about From Russia with Love, um, I believe. Um, so yeah, then we go on to Doctor No. And what did he do on Doctor No? Yeah, so he was hired as art director for the first Bond film. And unfortunately, his name was was left off of the credit titles by the designer, by by Morris Binder. who um, So Sid was all, always uh, rib him and make little jibes about the fact that whenever they appeared together on any, at any Bond event. So um, as compensation, Cubby Broccoli gave Sid a, a solid gold fountain pen. Wow, I don't, I don't know if that's <laughs> that's you know the same. Uh, I think I'd rather have the pen. <laughs> I, think he, I think he looked out there. I'd like to know how much a solid gold fountain pen's worth. Yeah, uh, is it gold all the way through the nib? Is it like everything gold? I think it'd have to be. Yeah. If you, it could be. You feel a bit cheated if it was just the, the top. <laughs> just <cut> <laughs> yeah. Um. So his, his most memorable contribution was the dragon tank on Crab Key. 
in that. And uh, he, he said, originally the dragon tank was supposed to come out of the water. I found a tar lake and it had a lot of dead trees around it, which I thought were rather rather nice. But we had to allow the machine to come out of the water. So he had to find out how deep it was. So he went in with Bob Simmons, who did the stunts on the film. So they both stripped to their underwear and they went in, pure mud and tar. So obviously discovered that the tank wouldn't be able to drive through it. And they said, we were attacked by thousands of mosquitoes, bitten all over. And when we came out of the lake, we were covered with leeches. That's a location I'll never forget. And then in the end, the dragon didn't come out of the water. It's a very memorable vehicle though, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Very memorable. Yeah, that's um, where Quarrel dies. That's a sad moment for me in that film. Still thinking about it, aren't you? Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, then he went on and continued his Bond career. Yes, so he uh, became significantly more important in uh, from Russia with Love because, as we all know from the Ken Adam section we did in the earlier in an earlier episode, um, uh, Ken Adam was poached by Doctor Strangelove, uh, not by Doctor Strangelove, <laughs> by Sandy Kubrick. <laughs> That's a different story altogether. Um, poached by Sandy Kubrick to work on Doctor Strangelove, which, as we all know, is a very impressive film and. Um, I believe uh, it actually won an award. His work on that film is, it's its almost like it's quite subtle because you probably, if you watched it, you wouldn't really straight away know, wow, that's an amazing scene. But perhaps the most important um, bit of work he did on it was the chess scene um, early on in the film where uh, you you probably remember that scene quite well. But what you don't remember about it is that the way he's designed the set is based on the design of the pawns um, on the chess on the chess game. So you've got like lights in the background that are the same shape as a pawn. All of the pillars look like pawns. It's quite impressive. If you if you type it into Google, um, you can find the picture straight away, and it just looks amazing. But it's this beautifully subtle design that he's pulled together that um, yeah, I I didn't even know about until uh, I, I I had a look into him. It's the scene with Kronstein, right, where he's playing the game of chess. And he gets called yes. away by Spectre, yeah. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's just a, a lovely... It's quite a short scene. Perfect. Yeah. But memorable. But very set. memorable. Yeah. Um, and then he's also responsible for a lot of... This is something that, in researching um, art directors and production designers, it's it's quite... The, the range of things that they get involved with within the films, though they... Obviously, he's doing these, these pieces with backgrounds in this chess scene, but also he worked on all of the Q... Uh, gadget designs um which you wouldn't expect to to be the same person really but um uh i I, you'll probably remember from that film there was there was the various gadgets he had uh, the concealed sniper rifle in the uh uh, attache briefcase um and yeah uh, the tear gas talcum tin yeah well he used it it, magnetic on the inside of the the case yes that's right Yeah, yeah yeah so um yeah those little things that you probably I'd never actually thought who does those, but yeah, he did those in that film, um, as well as Rosicleb shoes, which obviously are quite an important, memorable aspect of of those of that film and all of the Bond films. And they came back um, in uh, Die Another Day. Yeah, well, that's not going to too much depth about that. I don't. <laughs> Great film. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Um, and then, uh, then with Adam returning uh, to Goldfinger after his little. Um, trip with Doctor Strangelove, 
uh, Kane bowed out and um, he worked on a variety of films as a production designer. So that included The Amorous Adventures of Mole Flanders, which I haven't seen. Fahrenheit 451, which I think I have seen. Um, and Harry Palmer in The Billion Dollar yeah. Brain. Um, so that's it. Then, uh, then when does he turn up next? Well, he comes back um, in 1969 to work on Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which um, I think most people consider to be Sid Kane's sort of crowning achievement um, in all of his work, especially on Bond. Um, it's really interesting when you think about this film. I was talking, we were talking about the other day that it, it came after You Only Live Twice and then before, between, before Diamonds Are Forever. Two sort of gadgety, sort of silly films, really. Whereas Honor of Majesty's Secret Service, quite a serious film, uh, much less fantastical. And actually the only real gadget that you see Bond using in the film is a photocopier. Um, I've never really thought about that. But um, So obviously the most important set piece um, bit of production design in Honor of Majesty's Secret Service is Piz Gloria, um, the restaurant, um, sorry, the, the Blofeld's mountain lair. Um, Harry had been looking for somewhere to put um, Blofeld's lair and had found two bunkers on the on the Maginot line. Is it Maginot? Maginot? Which is the on the German-Swiss border. Um, but when Kane went to see them, when Sid Kane went to see him, he just wasn't impressed. And he suggested somewhere higher up on the Eiger Mountain. Um, and he'd found this restaurant that was going to be this circular restaurant. Um, and it was only part built. He said it was basically there. The foundations were there. It obviously needed a lot of alteration I wanted to do. It needed a lot of alteration I wanted to do. And I wanted to make the inside revolve. But I had a problem with the government. They said, no way. And then I said, well, if I build a heliport attachment to it, which I wanted to do anyway, if we made it for real, you could use it for mountain rescue. Um, and so it was the, the, the government really liked that idea and they gave them permission to build it. Um, so they built on the foundations of this restaurant and turned it into this fully working film set uh, with a helicopter pad attached. Um, and actually the cost of building that uh, there in the mountains actually was $60,000, which is a fifth of the cost of the volcanic crater lair from the previous film, You Only Live Twice. Um, mm. So the interior was completely designed by Sid Kane. Um, he had to build it with a view for it being usable as a, a set, but also being used by the public when they reopened it, um, when they actually opened, sorry, opened it to the public. And there was going to be no duplication of the inside of the, of, of the, of the lair um, at Pinewood. Um, the only thing that's it's not surprising, they spent so much of the film there. Yeah, exactly. You might put all the money on screen, right? Um, yeah. So the only interior scenes were Blofeld uh, that was shot on on stage were at Blofeld's lab and the the cave and the wheelhouse. You know the big wheelhouse that he climbs in. That was all done on yep. Pinewood. Yep. Um, so um, they Sid Kane also had to organise the construction of the bob bobsleigh run in the film. Uh, they were going to use the Cresta run, um, but they actually found that wasn't very practical. And also wasn't very exciting, so they designed another one, and it was made uh, locally. I mean, we'll do a lot more of this on the Honor Majesty Secret Service episode when we get to that. Um, one of the other really important things that Sid Kane did for the film, and actually for the franchise and the whole sort of lore of the film, was designing um, Bond's uh, sorry Blofeld's coat of arms. Um, so obviously mm. the whole film is is around heraldry. Yeah. Um, Bond has a look at his, but then he um, he designed Sid Kane designed Blofeld's as well, which then is that's got to be a good poster. Yeah, that's got to be that's then mounted at uh, Piz Gloria. 
um, mm-hmm. and he went to the the College of um, Arms and really researched it to to figure out what it what it was like. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, what, the, Piz Gloria is was renamed. It, was, it is now called Piz Gloria after the book, um, and it is now a fully functioning um, you know destination. And I, I really want to go actually. Um, but yeah, that was that was down to Sid yeah. Kane, which is quite an amazing achievement, really. Mm. Um, that's more. That's more than just your your average kind of designer, isn't it? That's that's, a hun- that's properly building something a usable architectural. Yeah, place that's, that's still yeah still standing. Mm. But it really cool. shows on the on on the screen in in that film. It's a very very striking location. Um, yeah, I, you'd have, you'd yeah. have sworn it was a place that had always been there, right? But um, well, I, su- I suppose if um, it it was going to be if it if it wasn't going to be used for real. They may have made it a bit more fantastical and put more stuff into it because, but it'd be pointless, wouldn't it? If you knew that it was actually going to have to be a building afterwards, you you'd have to make it more real and usable. So it's probably probably why it's such a down to earth sort of set piece for for Bond. So Sean Connery returned then in 1971 for Diamonds Are Forever, and so did Ken Adams. So uh, Sid Kane took his time away from Bond and he went to work on Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy and also a film called Fear Is the Key. Uh, but then he would return back to Bond uh, after. Yeah, he returned as supervising art director in 1973 on Live and Let Die, where he designed many of the set pieces, many of the gadgets, um, including, if you remember, the the Rolex, which has got a saw, a buzz saw on it. Um, mm-hmm. And that recently sold at auction for almost $200,000. Wow. That's, that's pretty hefty fee. Um Cubby took Sid Kane, Guy Hamilton and Tom Mankiewicz uh, to New Orleans and the West Indies um, just to get some sort of insight into how to make the movie. But they saw real voodoo rituals in uh, in Haiti. So, Yeah, Sid mm. Kane's got a book. He's written a, a book about uh, his work on Bond. It's really expensive and completely out of print, but apparently yeah. it's a really... I, I... Well, you said the link, didn't you, to, to where you found it? And I spent ages thinking, how am I going to get hold of this book? Is it? Can you get it in some sort of digital format? Can't get it anywhere. Can't get it anywhere. Is there only like one copy? Is that why it's so expensive? Well, I saw that some uh, uh, web fan websites had got hold of some signed copies a few years ago and were selling them for about 60 quid. But um, yeah, I don't know. Um, but yeah, apparently there's stories in there about him seeing the voodoo rituals, which I'd really like to read. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, he, he actually found Ross Kananga's Crocodile Farm. Um, after he spotted the trespassers will be eaten sign. And he says about that, we were left with a few crocodiles. And this is when they were, they obviously got permission to shoot there. And um, Ross Kananga doubled for Roger Moore. We had him run over crocodiles. Ross never wore shoes. So he had a special pair made for him with non-slip soles. He did the stunt several times because it kept slipping. And at one point the crocodile got him by the foot. He slipped out the shoe and luckily got away. The crocodiles are very intelligent, and by the second take, they were waiting for him, and they knew. Uh, eventually, they got it right, obviously, and the danger was averted. But um, I often forget that I watched it recently, and you just take it for granted. Because nowadays, if they were to do that, they wouldn't put anyone in that much sort of <laughs> risk at all. It's it's crazy that, that that he was that close even though it's his own farm they're still wild animals aren't they yeah. um, and he also um, brought the double, double decker bus over to Jamaica for that for that chase oh um, wow 
I just assumed it was one that some sort of simple one they built over there. But well, like, they had to, yeah. So they cut the top deck, like pre-cut it and put it on rails, so that it could slide off when it hits that mm-hmm. bridge. Um, and then, if you remember the boat chase, they had one of the boats goes really high in the air. Well, he said uh, the the boat had to go 15 feet in the air, and designing that scene was purely through trial and error. When you see the stunt, it had to be done for real. So I built a ramp and we kept trying with different boats. We destroyed about 24 of them. Wow. <laughs> they destroyed 24 boats. Um, so they had to redesign a, a special boat to get that that shot. Wow. Because uh, they couldn't do it with a, a normal one. So um, he wouldn't work on another Bond film with Roger Moore after his first outing. Uh, but he was production designer on four of his non-Bond uh, films gold 1974 shout at the devil in 1976 uh that's for director peter hunt the wild geese 1978 and the sea wolves in 1980 uh, he also worked in television in the mid 80s as a production designer on on some episodes of the new avengers yeah so then he's uh he sort of slowed his career down during the 80s he did lion of the desert 1981, Supergirl, 1984. One of you must have seen that one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Wild Geese 2, 1985, and then Tusks in 1988. Then he switched to being a storyboard artist, and he drew for Who Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is an absolute classic. So it's very impressive. Uh, That was 1988. And The NeverEnding Story 3 in 1994. Yeah, I don't remember that one. Bond called. Yeah, so now we go. We come back to Bond with Goldeneye, where he worked on the storyboards for the film, specifically um, around... Well, he worked across the back gadgets as well for Q Branch, and he's also the, the working on the design of the, the Goldeneye actual... the big Goldeneye satellite weapon. Um, and interestingly, this was... He's the... Um, he's worked across the debut films of four of the James Bond actors which is quite an interesting um position to be in when you haven't worked across like all of the films um and after bond he he went on to work on his final film was michael kane's boxing movie shiner have you ever seen that no neither have i I haven't actually heard of it um and uh he he's does did quite a lot of other stuff in his retirement he he um illustrated children books children's books worked on he wrote his autobiography, which we've already spoken about, which we're desperate to get hold of. So if any listeners know how to get hold of a copy of that without spending £500, <laughs> please let us know, because we all want to read that. Um, and of course, he was pretty popular at a lot of kind of Bond events and conventions, that kind of thing. Um, and then, yeah, he he, uh, he died in uh, November 2011, leaving quite quite the legacy. C is for Kane, Jeffrey Kane. So Jeffrey Kane is a screenwriter born in 1944 uh, in the UK. And he was part of, well, he wasn't part of, it wasn't a team. He was one of the writers of Goldeneye. Um, So Michael France had drafted the first screenplay for Goldeneye, but he'd written it with Timothy Dalton in mind. And obviously with, 
briefly touched about it and we'll talk about it again, that whole issue and the six-year gap. So Brosnan came on board and it needed a rewrite. So they brought in Jeffrey Kane. So he retained a lot of that structure and a lot of uh, Michael Francis' ideas, but with a few additions. And the the key one is the one at the beginning, the nine years before prologue that we see uh, 006 and 007 working together. Um, Something that really sets the really I mean obviously sets the film up but you get a real feel for it straight away it was quite an important scene for him to to add because I don't know where it would begin if if he hadn't have added that I just thrust into the story um so he he did that and then it was passed on to other writers as well um Bruce Fierstein and uh Kevin Wade so it was a real went through the mill before I got a finished version. But he he said, um, Barbara Broccoli had bought an option on a novel of mine and hired me to adapt it. Then I wrote original screenplay for her. When she needed a page one rewrite on the GoldenEye draft, she came to me. Afterwards, for no valid reason, MGM gave the script to others to rewrite. It's happened again to me since on another studio movie. It's the way the industry works. Don't fight it, accept it as the price of doing business in Hollywood. Slightly doesn't sound like he has accepted it, but that's... that's uh, <laughs> <by the bus. laughs> um, and then, so he was actually nominated for uh, an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay in 2005 for The Constant Gardener. So that's his other ah. notable work. John the Carré. <clears throat> yes. So that's... That's Jeffrey Kane and his uh, small part to play in in the Bond story. C is for Cameron. Alan Cameron. And who's Alan Cameron? Well, he is a production designer who... He hasn't worked on across the whole of the Bond series. He's only worked on Tomorrow Never Dies. So uh, Alan Alan Cameron was born um, 1944... Um, went to art school in Oxford, uh, went to the University of Birmingham and the Royal College of Arts in London. Um, he went on to designing for television shows um, a bit later on, which included Georgia Mildred. Have you seen Georgia Mildred? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's the only one I know from the list of things I've seen that he did before this. Uh, Born and Bred, The Naked Civil Servant, and Edward and Mrs. Simpson, uh, for which he received a BAFTA award. Um in the early 1980s, he went on to making films, and his first film was a film called The Honorary Consul, which is a novel by, by Graham Greene, and it's got uh, Richard Gere in it and, um, and Michael Caine. Uh, I watched a few trailers of it. I've not seen the actual film, so um, it doesn't look that exciting. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's done lots of other stuff as well. He uh, He's worked with the Kenyan government and the British Council, Um and he also, uh, interestingly, in 2012, along with all the other production designers that worked on Bond, uh, received a uh, what was it? A Guild Art Directors Guild Excellence in Production Design accolade. Um, so that's that's him and Ken Adam, uh, Peter Lamont, and Dennis Gassner. Then, uh, when Peter Lamont, apparently, uh, I read I read this line in a, a, a an article. Peter Lamont jumped ship to James Cameron's Titanic in 1997. Good line. Um, yeah, I thought that was quite clever. Uh, Cameron got involved and he um, 
he started working on Tomorrow Never Dies as the uh, production designer. Um, now, his previous roles that he'd done were probably... Um, he's, he's done stuff like uh, Highlander, Willow, Air America, Far and Away, The Jungle Book in 1994, um, Showgirls, interestingly. They don't really scream Tomorrow Never Dies to you. Um which is interesting, but later on, when he finished doing Tomorrow Never Dies, his whole list of films just looks like Tomorrow Never Dies. <laughs> so you've got The Mummy, Hollow Man, Mummy Returns, Shanghai Nights, Van Helsing, Revenge of the Mummy, The Da Vinci Code, Angels and Demons, Sahara. And when you read, when I read all of that list, I was thinking, that is Tomorrow Never Dies, isn't it? That's that style, that big, high-octane action style that Tomorrow Never Dies is. And you can kind of see that. I suppose there's a bit of it in the early ones. Highlander to an extent. Air America, um, though. Don't forget Roger Spottiswood. He's the director oh, yes. of Air America. Yeah. So that must be the link, right? Yeah. And Air America is probably the one that's, that's closest in style, I would probably say, to Tomorrow Never Dies as well. Um, oh, and Starship Troopers he did before then. That was a film he did well, at the same time. I don't, know if it, I don't know if it was filmed at the same time or before. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so then he went on to film, uh, well, to, to do the production design on Tomorrow Never Dies. And if you remember various scenes in Tomorrow Never Dies, he's, there's quite a lot of big set pieces in Tomorrow Never Dies. And it's quite, the, the, in terms of the scene you're in it, it's pretty impressive. I mean, whatever we think about the film itself, it's a good looking film and there's some pretty impressive set pieces. So he was the, he was in um, the man behind the Elliot Carver's ship. The stealth boat, um, yeah. An interesting, yeah, an interesting he says about it, the, the ship was that the challenge with the Bond film is marrying the reality to the fantasy element. The Americans had built a few stealth ships, but nothing on this scale. So I was inventing a completely new ship. But if you've seen To Whatever Dies and you've seen that ship, it, it looks like a completely new ship. And I don't think anyone's built a ship that looks like it afterwards. Um, he also did a lot of the... And we talked about this before when we talked about Ken Adam and that a lot of these kind of production designers, um, they were, you, you remember them for the big scenes, like the volcanoes and all this kind of stuff. But he also he talks a bit about um, the the Thai locations in the film, um, uh, and, and particularly Waylon's dirty old bicycle shop, um, which you probably wouldn't think of as being a big kind of set design piece. But um, he says about that, I love the idea of Waylon's dirty old bicycle shop. It was a small set, but I loved designing it. It was supposed to be a bit tongue in cheek. The geography of it was dictated by the fight that went on in the earlier part of the sequence. And then I love the fact that we had a complete textual change from this dirty shop into this ultra-modern, high-tech control room, which is quite interesting. And the um, and the, the Thai locations um, within the film, they're actually filmed in Frogmore Studios, which is it's actually quite near U Butler in Hertfordshire. Um, because I can't remember what happens at the time. I, uh, they couldn't use Leavesden at the time because um, it was being used by George Lucas. Uh, for Star Wars films, so they they, they sourced a lot of been. different locations. Phantom Menace, yeah, they must be. Yeah, yeah. So they sourced, a, they, they went sourcing a lot of these different locations, and one of them was, was Frogmore Studios. So yeah, that's that's it really. And as I say, he moved on to do a lot of Tomorrow Never Stars kind of big action and stuff after that. So there we go, Alan Cameron. C is for Campbell. Martin Campbell. It's a it's a big one. Um, Martin Campbell, obviously, um, 
He is re- responsible for two of the best modern James Bond films, I think it's fair to say, GoldenEye and Casino Royale. I mean, responsible. He was the director on it. Obviously, there's a lot of people involved with these two films, but, yeah. you know, I know in a re- the recent poll that we did on Yahoo that they said that um, the, his two films t- topped the poll, GoldenEye number one, Casino Royale number two, uh, the public poll. Mm-hmm. So, quite- I mean, there's an argument for him being the, best bond director right yeah i mean you say this because he's done a brosnan film (laughs) (laughs) here we go here we go no i say this because he's introduced two bonds and yes they were very successful yeah and he's probably if you look at any bond directors that have ever existed the ones that have got the toughest gig out of all of them are the ones that are starting a new bond hmm yeah, that's huge, huge weight on the shoulders. Yeah, it's, but both times, both with like one was a sort of a soft reboot, and then the other was a reboot. So let's learn a bit about Martin Campbell. He was born in on the twenty fourth of October, nineteen forty three, uh, in New Zealand, um, and but he's now a director and he's based in the UK. When you hear him speak, he does not have a Kiwi accent at all anymore. I, I didn't know he was when I listened to him. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't hear it. Yeah. yeah, I thought he was British. Born in Hastings, New Zealand, uh, Martin Campbell moved to London in 1966 to become a cinematographer, actually, when, when he was in his 20s. And he came looking for work as a cameraman and actually just ended up falling into directing, really. He said um, in an interview, in the late 1960s, I was a video cameraman at ATV, Lou Grade's company in Elstree. And I worked with directors there and I thought they were fairly useless and I could actually do the job much better. So that's where the idea came from. So he was just looking around thinking, I could do better than this. Um, He graduated to assistant director uh, with the 1972 exploitation film The Love Box and then made his directing debut the following year with an adult comedy called The Sex Thief in 1973, Mm. starring Christopher Biggins. So um, that's what, yeah, I, I I never knew that Christopher Biggins was in a film called The Sex Thief, or even in a film. I didn't know Biggins yeah. had been in film. I thought he just did Panto, <laughs> Panto, yeah. And funnily enough, apparently when Biggins was on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, he was. They did some sort of trial where he was quizzed about the the sex thief. Um, little fun fact for you. <laughs> Well, that's my evening sorted. Yeah. <laughs> and then in 1975, he directed his next film called The Eskimo. It's called Eskimo Nell. And this was a satire of the adult comedy genre. But get ready for this. All right. So it's also known as The Ballad of Eskimo Nell or alternatively, The Sexy Saga of Naughty Nell and Big Dick. So Ooh. and that stars Roy Kinnear, father of future Tanner, Rory Kinnear. So... Oh, Any though. excuse to get Tanner in? <laughs> Did you find this out when you were just researching Tanner for no reason, just by pure chance? So Campbell said the first couple of films I made were not exactly big hits, <laughs> and apparently it was all part of a trend of British films at the time for pushing boundaries on the censorship laws. And actually, those two films uh, were re-edited in foreign markets to become like hardcore porn films. They like inserted yeah. like actual like full sex scenes so um that's yeah weird so martin campbell started out mm. directing pornos basically 
Um, well, did did well for him. Yeah. So he um, he he realised from making those films that he wanted to find out how films were financed. He said, "I I I knew I had to learn how to be a producer. I could tell that the money wasn't ending up on the screen, and I needed to find find out why." So he spent the next few years and he produced two films. One called Black Joy in 1977, which was another exploitation film, supposed to be quite good. And then Scum, which you may have heard it, which has got Ray Winston um, in a in a inmate in a borstal. So he produced that. And so now he sort of got his head round how the film industry worked and how money's uh, films were financed. He then returned to directing and he went started to make um, TV shows, spy shows, police shows. He, he made episodes of Minder, The Professionals, Bergerac, Muck and Brass. And then this is where it starts to get interesting. Riley, Ace of Spy- uh, Spies, which is the Sam Neill show that landed him the audition to play Bond. Mm. And then a show called Charlie and then Edge of Darkness. Edge of Darkness we've talked about a few times before when we'd had, um, um, what was his name? Joe Don Baker. He came through from um, Edge of Darkness. So there's that. And then he started making feature films as well. And he did one called Criminal Law with Gary Oldman and Kevin Bacon. And, and Martin, at this time, he said, directing is what I always wanted to do. That's where my passion lies. Then he made a couple more films, um, Defenceless, Cast a Deadly Spell, Homicide Life on the Streets, and then a film called No Escape. And No Escape, have you ever seen this film? No. no. I watched the trailer for it. It looks absolutely bonkers. It's got Ray Liotta in it, um, and it's set in like the future, and he gets stuck in some prison, like futuristic prison, has to escape. It's crazy. But um, it was this film that John Kelly, who was a produ- uh, one of the studio execs at the studio at the time, MGM or United Artists, I can't remember which. But he saw the film. He'd made this $20 million film, Martin Campbell had. Um, and, he, and John Kelly said it looked more expensive. Um, so what they saw was that he was a talented director who knew how to work within his budget and who was able to put the money on the screen. And then when he met the producers, they discovered, you know, he, he'd read the books growing up. He was a fan of the Bond films. And that, that's really, you know, um, where, yeah, how he landed the gig. Of Goldeneye. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad you, well, it, it, you would have been very confused if it wasn't. When he, <laughs> from that. Sorry. Yeah, I should have said he was. Yeah, it was for Goldeneye. Um, yeah. So, like you said, it was the quality of No Escape, the quality, the whole, you know, ju- getting as much juice out of of it of the money as he could, and also the Edge of Darkness series from 1985 mm. that that swung the producers the, what about christopher biggins <laughs> no 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 okay. <laughs> um so they decided that he was the right choice and this this was a bond i think we've touched on it before it's had a smaller budget yeah because united yeah. artists were slightly apprehensive after the big gap they didn't want to throw it all so Probably why they went for a frugal director that could get as much money out of out of it as, as possible. Um, so, upon getting the role, he watched the first 16 Bond movies and felt that he had to take the Sean Connery era as his reference point. Um, Does, said, has anybody ever not said that? <laughs> so I'm going to take the... Roger Moore era is my... Well, I'll take a view, to, back, a view to a kill. 
Uh, no, you joke. Maybe in ten years, you joke. But Chris, Christopher Nolan, he he regularly cites *The Spy Who Loved Me* as like the film that still inspires him to this day. He still yes, talks about it. I have it. read that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not so, *View to a Kill*. No, <laughs> no, not *View to a Kill*. <laughs> just Mark. Just Mark O'Connell. He loves the *View to a Kill*. <laughs> so he said there were all these other heroes, and remember, this is at the mid nineties. The Bruce Willis's. The Arnold Schwarzeneggers, they're all blue collar, but there are no sophisticated anti-heroes around. So I made Goldeneye a showcase for that kind of hero. So you've got the, the 1995, we've just done Brosnan, so we've well tapped into the, the notion of Goldeneye and the problems it surrounded, you know, Bond being relevant. So Martin Campbell had a difficult task on his hand. He, right from the outset, um, they didn't even hold auditions for Pierce Brosnan again we've covered that that he it was a shoe in it was Pierce Brosnan all the way he also used the spy who loved me as a reference point as well so there you go so it was the opening stunt uh the parachute in the spy who loved me uh Martin Campbell decided that he wanted to open Goldeneye with a similar spectacular yeah, stunt yeah it seems, it, I've never thought about that but they are quite similar aren't they in yeah the scale of what they do yeah so so that's exactly what, what he did um and again iconic isn't it fantastic yeah. so that that paid off so while he was working on Goldeneye he was very very disciplined and um he would do long days so he would get to set half five six in the morning and plan the day so he'd get there before anyone else and Pierce Brosnan says this in the um, the commentary, the live commentary of Goldeneye, that because Pierce Brosnan's son worked on Goldeneye as well, and he got there on mornings, and Martin Campbell would already be there, setting up sh- setting up shots with no one else there. Um, so yeah, he'd and then he'd start work at seven thirty. Uh, the shoot would start at eight o'clock sharp, so it was very sort of strict on how he would run these sets, um, and then that would continue till seven o'clock in the early evening um with only an hour lunch break and he did this throughout the whole shoot for 20 weeks six days a week with work working on extra admin on sundays yeah absolutely incredible but i'll tell you what though, that that pressure of directing that any bond film let alone the first bond film after five six years of not having one it's got to be you'd be stressed every night with the anxiety as you're lying in bed going i've got to make this work because if he did it wrong yeah, it could have been huge. the end of it could end the bond. So I think I would be in the I'd be up the same as him every day, trying to you yeah know, get everyone's sandwiches out. But I ready, think ready to go. Also great that we got someone with that mentality in charge of it all. Oh yeah, because then it's, yeah. it rubs off on, on, on everyone else. Yeah, um, Brosnan also said that the there was constant shouts like so if you were an actor you were absolutely terrified of Martin Campbell because the authority he had. And he'd constantly be shouting, sharp as a knife, sharp as a knife, 150%, like, after each, before every take. Wow. Um, yeah. And he said people would come in, like, just for one day shoot actors and just be absolutely terrified, like, what's going on? Whereas if you were there long term, you got a bit more used to it. Um, yeah. I read this quite a lot about um, Campbell, but every time I see him in interview stuff, he just seems like a really nice... So mild-mannered, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, I, I just can't put two and two together. I need to find some shots of him shouting at people on yeah. uh, on set. Yeah, but even the photos from him on set, he looks so calm and he's just like yeah. pointing. Yeah, maybe that's part of it. He's like a Bond villain. He's just got that. <laughs> he's 
just he's just relaxed, but he's really in charge of the whole thing. Yeah. So I've got a few things that he said about uh, Goldeneye, um, and you'll notice a pattern as well. So he said, I had Simon Crane as stunt coordinator, and he was amazing, but I must say that the real secret to a lot of the action sequences in Goldeneye is Derek Meddings, who was the miniature effect supervisor. He was a genius. There are a lot of models in the film, the train, the helicopter, the giant telescope, and Derek made it all look real. Again, so much pressure on everyone. <laughs> yeah. that, you know, got to pull it out, got to put something fantastic on screen. Um, for Goldeneye, we chose Pierce Brosnan. And I worked with, with Pierce the way I approach any actor. I go through the script, we discuss we discuss it, and the thing about Bond is you want him to be very comfortable in his own skin. Pierce could handle Bond physically, but he also had great comic timing and a mischievous quality in his eyes. He was very clever. So, I mean, he's he's worked with him since as well uh, in The Foreigner, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But So he obviously gets on with Pierce and, and sees Pierce as a, a great Bond. And then at the time of Goldeneye, Pinewood was booked up and all the studios were booked up. So we went looking for warehouses and decided on Leavesden. I worked closely with Peter Lamont, who is a fantastic production designer and nothing is too much trouble for him. He's extremely helpful and efficient and amazingly flexible, but also has very strong views. One of my favourite sets in the film is the statue graveyard where Bond has a confrontation with the villain. That was a Peter Lamont special. So you can see these quotes, despite being terrifying on set, he is massive on collaboration and mm. he will give credit to everybody he's working with. And that is probably a key to some of his successes. Um, yeah. yeah. Apart from, he said, I was disappointed in the music. Our budget was not that much and it was limited to what we could do. And when I was dubbing the tank chase, the music that came in for it was exactly the same register as the tanks. In other words, it disappeared. So I rang Eric Serra in France and said, look, we've got a real problem. I remember saying to him, there's no point in using synth because it will just disappear. We need to use the Bond theme. You can always get percussion and brass to crash through the effects. I remember his answer to me was, well, lower the effects. So I said, I'm not going to do that. And that was the end of our conversation. Oh, dear. So that was them, that was them done creatively. <laughs> um, yeah, so he wasn't too happy with that. And, and we've just discussed that as well. It's the one thing that's jarring and sort of mm. stands oh, out about Goldeneye. Eric. Yeah, reluctance. And apparently it was because he, was, uh, he didn't want to... He didn't get uh, credits. He didn't get money for it. Royalties. So he didn't want to use the Bond theme. Ah. That's his reason. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was absolutely pivotal, Martin Campbell, in, in introducing this new Bond, new era. He had a, played a role in M, in casting Judy Dench as M. Yeah. Um, he was fully behind that because he was seeking for that something uh, to sort of make Bond relevant. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, he did. Fantastic. He did a good job. I mean, and this isn't normally when when we're talking about Brosnan films, it's because you're going on about them. But <laughs> I mean, he's the work that the the job he pulled pulled off on that on that film is is phenomenal. And um, yeah, fair play to him. Well done getting there early and being strict on set because it paid it, off. It paid yeah. off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, after then, you might think, well, why didn't he do any more? Bond films um, in the Brosnan era 
because um, he because he didn't turn up again until Casino Royale, which is interesting. One because he didn't do any more between those two two um, two actors, but also um, because he's done a second film with a different Bond, and he's only done two. So it's quite an interesting uh, directorial um, position to be in for for a Bond uh, director. Um, and apparently he was offered the role to do uh, the opportunity to do further James Bond films, as you would expect after GoldenEye, because it did so well. And it, it kind of, I suppose, to an extent, saved the day after years of worry and fear that it might it might not continue. I read um, um, that he was offered every every Bond, uh, Brosnan era Bond film. Yeah, yeah, I think that I think that's true. Yeah. Um, but he obviously didn't take any of them. Uh, apparently because he he found the plot to be limiting in the later mm-hmm. films. Um, uh and, and only really wanted to work with uh, on a lot of film if he was it was to be with a new actor. And he talks a bit about there's lots of interviews where he kind of talks about you know the joys of working on the first first Bond film. He says uh, this is what he's talking about when he's he's going through the working on uh, the the later Brosnan films. Another control room to blow up, another nutcase taking over the world, and also there is this something refreshing about starting a new Bond, and particularly with Piers Brosnan. It was sort of a Cold War sort of situation then, and we had Judi Dench for the first time, so there was a kind of excitement to doing it. And what he's saying there is that's his experience on the first on doing Goldeneye. He loved it. He loved the excitement of, mm. of kind of working with these new people. He loved changing. And as... as um, uh, Brendan said he watched all 16 Bond films beforehand to kind of get to grips with it. So he's a man who's putting the effort in to really understand these films, and 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 he, that's the excitement he got from from working on it. Um, so so then he talks about uh, Die Another Day, um, uh, and they didn't want to make a you know there's a the film was the series was at risk of becoming a bit of a parody of itself in the fact that um, it was even though it did well at the cinema, it wasn't critically well received um so suddenly things got a bit more interesting again and they changed from brosnan and they wanted a new actor and 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 suddenly campbell came back in and went okay this is interesting now i'm as a new actor there's a new position to be in how are we going to do this um he says about casino royale and 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 getting involved with um um, barbara broccoli and michael wilson again what was great was that i had a very free-handed casino royale the producers, Barbara Ruckley and Michael Wilson, were very supportive of new ideas. Even when we started to explore Bond's character in more detail, his uh, his darker side. So you can see there he's he's quite interested in delving a little bit more deeply into Bond. And he's got this opportunity to do it instead of just doing A Tomorrow Never Dies or something like that. Mm. Um, and he, he talks about how they wanted to make it more realistic. Um, he, he actually says more like from Russia with Love. Um to be uh, with more credibility um, uh, and a big change of direction, basically. Um, and th- and they really wanted to take it back to basics. Um, so the film starts at the beginning of Bond's career. It's basically a fresh start for Bond. It, you, he, he's got full control over th- that storyline. He doesn't have to stick with what he'd done in Goldeneye or what somebody else had done. Um, and Bond's got a lot of rough, rough edges. He's a loner. He doesn't like to get involved with people straight away. That's suddenly a very interesting scenario to be in for for um, a director because it's all new. Um, but that wasn't enough for Campbell. He wanted the Casino Royale Bond to show character development as well, which not a lot of, if any, Bond films actually he have character development in them. But obviously, Casino Royale has a lot of character development. So they uh, went whilst making. The uh, Casino Royale, they brought in um, Oscar-winning scriptwriter Paul Haggis 
um, who did Crash in Million Dollar Baby. Uh, he was brought in to rewrite an already written screenplay by Neil Purvis and Robert Wade um, because they wanted this focus on characterization. So you can see the effort they're putting into this character, which they probably, I imagine in a lot of Bond scripts, especially earlier ones, the character, it's defined, it's done. You don't have to worry about that. It's just action sequences, get it all in, get it looking good. But this was all about characterization, which obviously um, he's very, very keen on. Um, and it's that emo uh, resulting emotional complexity in the script that also attracted Daniel Craig. So you can see all these different parts coming together mm. that, that go on to make this really interesting film that Campbell's been involved with. Um, in One of the scenes he talks about being the most interesting, and you can probably imagine this because, I mean, you, uh, Brendan, did you ever go to um, Secret Cinema Bond? Yeah. Um, so the uh, he talks about shooting the car playing scene and he says that it was more difficult than any of the action sequences you have 10 people sitting around a table with drinks playing texas hold'em and looking at their cars at each other maintaining the tension and the con continuity was a nightmare and you can see that it's such a brilliant yeah. scene and he just pulls that together which i i can't imagine if that was in a roger moore film that would probably be two minutes they yeah. wouldn't they wouldn't focus on that at all they'd it'd be, it'd go straight into an action sequence but yeah that's that's a really big part for him um it took nine days to shoot that scene. Uh, they had multiple decks of cards, especially organised, so that the cast got the same hand each time they shot the scene. Um, so, that, yeah, you can kind of get the effort they've gone into to, to create that scene. Um, uh, other things he talks about within Casino Royale, he's, uh, obviously Vespa, massive part of it, and, and something that the series really hasn't seen before. He says, uh, she's not the classic Bond girl, wearing a bikini, being sexy and firing guns. There's more to her than that, and she has a great impact on Bond's life. He underlines the point that the relationship between Vesper and Bond is the spine of the story, and there's no doubt that it is the best female role in all of Fleming's books, which I'm not going to argue with at all. <laughs> no. I think it's pretty much spot on. So you can see all these all these things coming together. It just shows that he's just excited about these characters. He just wants to build these characters. He's not an action director. He's not he's not just trying to copy off the previous films. This the excitement comes from the newness of it and the fact that he's been given this opportunity, um, and. A lot of people, and uh, according to the sources, much of this transformation um, and this fresh start for Bond came from Campbell's influence behind the camera. He was focused on this as you were making the film. He would pick things out and, and say that. He's a different Bond, he says, in every way. Judging by the box office results around the world so far, the difference has been truly appreciated. That's not his quote. That's actually a line from a um, <laughs> an article. <laughs> uh, and then Daniel Craig just says about Martin being on set... Um, and I don't, knowing what we know about um, about him being uh, quite strict on set, I don't know, probably could take this one of two ways, but Martin fires everyone up. You obviously need that level of energy in the action sequences, but it's equally valuable in quieter, dramatic scenes. Um, and then talking about uh, uh, Martin is very enthusiastic and he knows the Bond scene very, very well, as you can obviously get. I suppose yeah. the, other, the only other thing that uh, is interesting about talking about um, the Casino Royale and I, it's not really to do with to do with um, Martin Campbell but um, he talks quite a lot in an interview I found about Henry Cavill and how it was almost and I didn't realise this I always thought that Henry Cavill was kind of like just one of a list of people that you know were getting coverage in the newspapers for going oh he might be the next one he might be the next one but apparently it was a pretty close thing when it came to Casino Royale he was like 
one of the main ones, according to Martin Campbell. And if Martin Campbell saying he was one of the main ones, pretty likely he was he was right at the top there. Um, but he he was really young. He was like 22 at the time. So yeah, he, he didn't get the role. Uh, but that does lead me to think that you know, there's I, I've never I've, I've dismissed him before, but I don't know, maybe it's going to be a you know similar scenario to like Brosnan where well, but they come in later. all of them, I think. Brosnan had been seen before. Dalton had been seen before. Roger had yeah. been seen before. They'd all sort of had yeah. prior, obviously except yeah. for Lazenby and Connery, but um, they'd all had prior brushes with Bond before they landed it the first time round. So yeah, properly. Yeah. So um, yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Well, in doing that research, it suddenly opened up my eyes, thinking, "Oh, actually, that's if that's true, that's that's quite a, a big deal." Um, and this is a really interesting bit uh, based on what we spoke about in, I think this is the last podcast, I think it's the one before, Bourne, the yeah. Bourne films. And this cropped up in my research and I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, because I, because you normally think it's just me talking about Bourne films, but it does crop up quite a lot in, in Bond uh, articles and interviews. Uh, so he was asked about Bond and uh, in an interview. It, it wasn't one of the big papers, but um, it, they, they was asking him about Bond being similar to Bourne. And he says... I don't think so. The truth about the Bourne films, which I love, by the way, and I think Matt Damon is fantastic at them, but that, but it's about a man who is hunted by his past, someone who can't remember his past. He's always on the run, and he's a very serious kind of... He's focused on trying to find his past. Whereas Bond, I think, has a lot of elements. He has a sense of humour. He has. He's a great womaniser. He's attractive. He's a great poker player or a card player. He's a gambler. He's all of these things. Plus, he's deadly. So he has all of these elements. Now that's something Bourne doesn't have, which... I think is a pretty good overview of, of, of the difference between the two. Um, so yeah, so that, and then after Casino Royale, obviously this is Martin Campbell. He's done the first one. He doesn't appear in any of the other Daniel Craig <laughs> films. He didn't, uh, he, did, he didn't, he uh, didn't direct anything after that. Uh, but what's he up to now, Butler? Well, just outside of Bond, after Goldeneye, he made Mask of Zorro, Vertical Limit, Beyond Borders and The Legend of Zorro. So that was his in-between Bond films. Uh, those Zorro films are quite good though, I think. Um, after Casino Royale, he made a remade uh, the Edge of Darkness TV series as a film starring Mel Gibson. Then he went on and made Green Lantern in 2011. Oof. This was the Ryan Reynolds film, um, which Ryan Reynolds, you know... Finest work. He wasn't very strict on that set, was he? Well, I don't know what happened there. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, this isn't the Green Lantern podcast, but we won't go into great detail, but it, it's widely considered one of the worst superhero movies, right? And uh, even Ryan Reynolds will take any yeah. opportunity to, to shit on that film. Sorry. Um, if, you, if you were to show Casino Royale and Green Lantern to somebody and say, what do you, what do you what think connects the these, two, these two? Yeah. You'd be like, I've got no idea. Not even the CGI. I can't think of anything. Yeah, that's a... That's a ponderer. But I th- I, you wonder how much control he had over the film. There was lots of writers on that. Um, so, yeah. And mm. then he, he'd set up a deal with ABC. Martin Campbell did. He made... Um, he, he shot the pilot for Last Resort, which was a military drama, and that ran for one season. At this point as well, he was linked with directing and producing a reimagining of the sci-fi series Blake 7 for sci-fi. That's yet mm. to... Um, that's yet to materialise. Other things under his ABC deal was um, a pilot for a show called Reckless. That was just released as a TV film that starred um, Patrick Fugit and Stephen Lang. So then another military drama shot the pilot for, didn't get picked up for a series, was called Warriors in 2014. 
And then he re-teamed with Pierce Brosnan in 2017 for The Foreigner, which was a Jackie Chan film. Also stars Katie Lung from the Harry Potter films. You've seen that one, Brendan? No, no. I haven't, surprisingly, even though it's got Brosnan in. I oh, know. I think it's a cameo from Brosnan there. Um, his next <laughs> film, which is currently in post-production, sounds quite interesting. It's got it's called The Asset, and it's co- it's got Samuel L. Jackson, Maggie Q, Michael Keaton, and Robert Patrick. Um, and it follows Maggie Q and um, Michael Keaton's characters. They're assassins who share a past, um, and they're sort of like going across the globe, across the globe, competing for high-profile contacts. Um, mm. Anyway, they ha- they have to team up and return to Vietnam to tr- to track down the killer of Samuel L. Jackson's character. So that sounds quite interesting. Yeah, a bit more in the sort of the the Bond wheelhouse. And then uh, he's also um, in development for a film called Memory, which is a Liam Neeson assassin film also. It's the remake of a Belgian film called The Memory of a Killer. That's according to IMDb. I don't have any more information on those. Liam Neeson's still doing those, is he? Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what the post will look like for that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, everything I read about Martin Campbell, I think that everyone sort of has a lot of praise for him in terms of like... Yeah. Um, saying he brings a lot of energy to set and how like he really creates a, a good atmosphere on the sets. And I think it's interesting you said that about, um, uh, you know, how he made two of the best Bond films, but actually he was given a real plum opportunity by directing two first Bond films. That's a real opportunity that, you know, mm. he really took, took, yeah. took the, took the, took the challenge on and really delivered two great films. And you wonder how, looking at his catalog now, whether, you know, that will now be his crowning glory, right? It probably will be. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it is a great opportunity, but also a lot of pressure and a lot of risk. Yeah. To yeah. pull that off. Yeah. You know, yeah. and he, he done it. Well, a testament to him. It's quite weird really that he came in to do the first Brosnan one did a really good job didn't come back until to the Casino Royale because I mean that's a pretty one on the side of Barbara Broccoli and and, and the team because that, I've never seen that happen before where you get the director in no not one for ages and then get them back in later it's quite a yeah I mean they must be pretty keen on him mm. especially when they're readers that that they're the, the whole focus of Casino Royale was completely restarting most of it and coming up with a new way to do it. So to bring in the guy who did the first of the Brosnan ones seems like a really strange scenario to be in. He's set off four four years of Brosnan, uh, four films of Brosnan, and then it's a it's almost a risk, isn't it? Because like, well, we don't, we're trying to get away from this, but we're bringing in the guy who started started mm. it in the first place. But I mean, yeah. there's a great decision, and they obviously knew they knew it was a good decision at the time. Yeah, Hall of Fame. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Mm. Interestingly, uh, another fact for you, which I forgot to mention, is that he's the oldest director in the Bond series because he directed um, Casino Royale when he was 62. Wow. Beating uh, Lewis Gilbert, who was the previous oldest at 59 for doing Moonraker. Well, interesting you should say Casino Royale, but in a few episodes time, we will be doing a full special episode on Casino Royale. So that is one to keep an eye out for on your podcast feed. I'm actually really looking forward to that. Can't wait for that. But we'll also be doing the David Niven Casino Royale. So um, which one are we doing first? (laughs) Chronological (laughs) order. Um, Well, no, we'll see. We'll see. We might release them same time. Mm. Who knows? 
I also read. I've been. I was trying to find out if he was likely to do any more Bond films oh. because there's obviously a question of he's done the first of Goldeneye, did the first of Casino Royale, uh, of that story arc. Would he do any more? I found it quite difficult to get any kind of concrete evidence, but there does there are interviews where he suggests that he would be up for it. So maybe it's not the last time we see Martin Campbell do a Bond film. Then he really would be the oldest one to do it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> By a long stretch. <laughs> Join us again on the next episode of the James Bond Age Said podcast. It's going to be a really interesting one, I think. Um, we'll be talking about the guy who designed the logo for the James Bond franchise, the the gun and the double O's. Uh, yeah. A handful of um, no, that's the wrong phrase. A cl- no, I'm trying to use the, the correct phrase here. Quite a few Bond girls um, will be on the next episode. <laughs> okay, yeah. that is the correct phrase. Yeah, yeah. Not a handful. That's not, not right. And also, we'll we'll look at um, Elliot Carver as well, one of our favourite um, middling Bond villains oh, from the Brosnan right, area. Okay. You, you could have said a clutch of Carvers because there's a there's a few, there's a couple <laughs> of Carvers. There's a few. Yeah, there's a few Carvers in there. And so, if people want to get in touch with us, if you want to email us, it's podcast at jamesbond to z uk, and if you want to find us on facebook twitter and instagram the handle is at james bond a to z beautiful so thanks for listening wherever you are listening to us from please leave us a review and a five-star rating if you enjoyed what you heard tell your friends tell your enemies um and join us next time for more james bond a to z james bond will return thanks for listening Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingomels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers stay clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money.